Hello, my name is David Old and this is Dual Citizens, episode two. Today on Dual Citizens, what's the relationship between the state and parents when it comes to doing what's best for our kids? What to make of the UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson's office parties in the middle of COVID lockdown? But first, yesterday here at the Dual Citizens studio in Australia, it was Australia Day. Good day, mate. Australia Day is the official national day of Australia. Observed annually on the 26th of January, it marks the 1788 landing of the first fleet at Sydney Cove. Uh, the very first Australia Day was actually celebrated on July the 30th in 1915. Back then, uh, during World War I, it was used as a national event to raise funds for troops who had been wounded at the Gallipoli landings earlier that year. In the 1980s, the Australian government began to take an increasingly prominent role and establish the National Australia Day Committee. By 1994, all states and territories began to celebrate a unified public holiday on that actual day for the first time. And it was only in 1994 that January the 26th became a national public holiday to be named Australia Day. Uh, the first Australia Day protests were actually held on the 26th of January 1938, coined with the label A Day of Mourning. And since then, there have been notable protests uh, pretty much every year now, including in 2012, where the then Prime Minister Julia Gillard actually had to be escorted by Australian Federal Police away from violent protests. What do Australians think about Australia Day? Well, uh, the recently published uh, survey of 2,297 uh, people by YouGov found that 56% of people were in favour of keeping the date of Australia Day as it is. But younger generations that they asked are more likely to prefer celebrating the national holiday on a different day. 49% of Gen Z and 46% of millennials voted in favour of the change. 34% of Gen X voted to support the date change, while only a quarter of the baby boomers were in favour. Support for change is strongest in Victoria, surprise, surprise, where 44% of respondents overall were in favour. Now, polling in 2021 showed a dramatic rise in the past few years of support for changing the date of, or even completely abolishing Australia Day. And of course, things have been further impacted by the recent Black Lives Matter protests. 59% of the survey respondents agreed that those, uh, that movement, Black Lives Matter, was making an important contribution to conversations about racial injustice in Australia. I say all this just so that we're clear, this is a live issue in Australia and it's not going away. So what are the potential solutions other than just keeping Australia Day as it is? What's been suggested? Well, some have suggested January the 31st, which still allows the holiday to be in January, but um, I'm not sure that's gonna fly. It's basically uh, five more days for Australians to do nothing till they really get back to work again. Some have even suggested the first Monday in February. That's just more days of slacking off Australia's national pastime. Uh, some have said May the 8th, uh, thought to be more inclusive because you'd say it mate. Uh, that just feels a little bit superficial, really. Uh, I'm not sure that one uh, will fly. Uh, how about May the 9th? That marks the day in 1901 when we became a self-governing 
Federation. And other options might be May the 26th, uh, which is currently the National Sorry Day, or May the 27th, which is when in 1967 Australians voted in a historic referendum to allow the federal government to make laws for Indigenous Australians and effectively including them in the census count and making them citizens properly for the first time. Well, what to think about all of this? It would be wrong, I think, for us to deny that this is an important topic. If you live outside Australia, you may be entirely unaware of some of the atrocities that were committed as European settlers spread across this great southern land. Uh, not only that, but there has been, as in other lands, a sad legacy of racism towards Aboriginal people. At Federation in 1901, Aboriginal people weren't even counted in the census and had no right to vote. That right came in 1962 in citizenship effectively granted as they were counted in that later census. And of course, these changes, important as they were, didn't just solve everything. When the first fleet landed, it was a direct challenge to the Aboriginal way of life. There was a genuine clash of cultures, which continues to leave many Aboriginal communities decimated and struggling to continue in ways that they have practiced for a long, long time. Now, of course, It'd be wrong for us to also suggest that this was all 100% bad. No culture is perfect since all of us are sinners. The idea of this idyllic community living in utopia is frankly a fantasy. As just one example, a number of Aboriginal coming of age rituals are effectively a form of fertility cult. Uh, gospel workers I know deep in the Northern Territory, men and women who profoundly love the Aboriginal people they work amongst have related to me some of the awful things done to young Aboriginal men at their corroborees. Things I can't even repeat on air. Uh, what I hope we can see is that this is a complex issue. Nevertheless, it's hard to avoid the conclusion, I think, that Australia Day, January the 26th, 1788, was in many ways an invasion day. But what do we do with it? Well, here's something I think worth considering. January the 26th, 1788 was also Gospel Day for Terra Australis. That first fleet may have contained European invaders, but it also had a birth for Richard Johnson, the chaplain, a convinced evangelical Christian. And the gospel he brought has had a profound effect amongst many Aboriginal communities, just as it has amongst the settlers. So could we not have a solution for this conundrum that expresses the gospel? The gospel redeems and recreates because at its heart is the promise of change, indeed resurrection. The Apostle Paul tells the Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So, while I understand the arguments behind change the date, I want to suggest something slightly different. Redeem the date. Keep Australia Day on January the 26th, only redeem the day. See, the gospel means we don't have to pretend the past never happened, but it also means we don't have to avoid the past. We can actually deal with it. And the Christian way of dealing with things that have gone wrong, the very best way of dealing with such things, is to properly acknowledge them in repentance if necessary, and to offer forgiveness where we have been wronged. How good would it be next Australia Day if we had a national ceremony of reconciliation where our government acknowledged past wrongs and current injustices and that was met 
with an open offer of forgiveness and a rich, deep, heartfelt welcome to country. Now, I realize it sounds like a little bit of a fantasy, but at the same time, we know that the gospel is the only real power to bring people together. And with God, all things are possible. I also realize that one of the great harms of some of the current critical theory activism is that it seeks to hold people responsible for things that others have done, simply because they share common characteristics, principally racial background. But that doesn't stop us from acknowledging that wrongs happened in the past and still happen today. And maybe this is worth pursuing simply so we can keep explaining why. So we can keep telling people the gospel of Jesus who redeems and makes new and so reconciles us one to another. And of course, we can keep making every effort to live it out, especially at any time that we might come across the issues of race and history that Australia certainly hasn't finished grappling with. Well, now to a sadder personal story. On January the 7th, an eight-year-old girl, Elizabeth Rose Strews, was found dead in her Toowoomba home west of Brisbane in Queensland. Police allege that her death was due to her parents, Kerry and Jason, withholding her insulin injections despite their daughter being diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. Uh, media reports suggest that her parents are members of a tiny secretive quasi-Christian sect that met in their home and that the medicine was withheld due to their unerring belief that God, rather than ordinary medical treatments, would restore little Elizabeth to full health. Uh, Neighbours report loud music and singing coming from the house around the day of her death, with again news reports suggesting that the parents, alongside others, were worshipping and asking for healing for this desperately ill little girl. Uh, the parents have now been charged with murder, torture and failing to provide the necessities of life. It's, it's just a devastating story, isn't it? I mean, it's just awful. It is a clear case of neglect with tragic consequences. A young girl has died needlessly due to her parents' religious misapprehensions. This shows what can happen when we have poor theology. This is clearly a situation where the state had every right to intervene in the biologically and socially foundational relationship between parent and child. Romans 13 tells us that the role of the state is, amongst other things, to punish wrongdoing. But it is an extreme case on the far end of a growing debate, what is the relationship between the duty of care the state now seems to hold over children and fundamental parental rights? The scriptures are very clear. It's the parent's role and duty to raise children. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it, we read in Proverbs. Of course, the very best training of any child is to introduce them to Jesus and teach them just how wonderful he is. That excellent parenting is on display in Matthew 19 when parents bring their little children to Jesus. The apostle also reminds us that not to provide for those we're responsible for is a denial of the faith and makes us worse than an unbeliever. Strong words. This is important stuff. The responsibility rests clearly with the parents. Now, the state rightly intervenes when parents uh, neglect those responsibilities. One of the sadnesses of ministry is to sometimes be involved in such cases, and I've certainly seen a number. But there are surely grey areas in this interplay between parent and state. The state, as we've seen, Romans 13, is God-given in order to, amongst other things, punish wrongdoing. But what if the state's perception of wrongdoing becomes massively 
warped or even just uh, applied where it shouldn't be. Let's take as a hypothetical the family of anti-vaxxers, not against COVID-19 uh, vaccine necessarily, but instead opposed to the various injections that children now receive uh, throughout their infancy and in school. Now again, I'm in favour of vaccinations. I actually had my COVID booster this morning and all our kids have had all their jabs. But what if parents, for reasons of religious belief, medical concern or scientific dissent decided is not in their child's best interests to receive vaccines? Should the state disregard the wishes of the parents in such a circumstance? On balance, we want to say surely not. While we may think the parents are misinformed and are perhaps not acting in their children's best interest, there must be some room for the wishes of families and basic individual liberty while still seeking the utmost safety and due care for children. Maybe let those families work out the consequences of those decisions for themselves. The right to disagree and even to be wrong is a fundamental one that we ought to be keen to defend, even if we think someone's making a mistake. See, parents make mistakes all the time, I know, I, I am one. Not every decision I have made for my children has been the right one. Just ask them. Clearly not, again, I am a sinner. But we ought to be very careful about allowing the authorities to intervene in our mistakes unless the consequences are absolute as they were in the tragedy of little Elizabeth Rose. Now, if you think I'm overstating things, consider the developing threat to parents of faith and others currently unfolding in Australia. Recent Victorian legislation, we're also seeing it in Queensland, demands that parents, ministers, therapists, affirm an individual's gender identity with no scope for any alternate view, even if that individual asks for help not to feel the things that they're feeling. So for example, if a church member comes to me and says, I have homosexual attraction, I'm convinced from the Bible it's not a good thing, and I'd like you to pray with me for that, well, I'm breaking the law if my prayer in any way could be perceived as looking to convert that person's sexuality. If my son says to me, I think I'm a girl, then under the legislation, I'm not allowed to say, well, let's talk about that for a bit because perhaps you're confused. Let alone take them for some help from a psychologist who will care for them while helping them understand where the dysphoria comes from and not necessarily affirming the statements that they're making. For those of us who hold a biblical view of gender, sexuality, and so on, the idea that we might have no say in the medical or psychological choices of our underage children let alone be prosecuted for doing what is best for them, is surely anathema. But that is happening right now in other jurisdictions, and it's coming to Victoria very soon. It needs us to speak up where we can, and perhaps be prepared to suffer the consequences of continued faithfulness. And of course, the very best way for us to defend our parental responsibility, as set out in the scriptures, is to use it well, to raise our children in the knowledge of Jesus, and support and encourage others in doing just that. Okay, this dual citizen now wants to talk about his country of origin. Let's go to the UK, where Prime Minister Boris Johnson has recently come under intense scrutiny after we learned of a party in the gardens of 10 Downing Street, his official residence, all in the middle of the COVID lockdown. Invitations were reportedly sent to over 100 employees at the height of the first wave of the 2020 pandemic. Around 40 of them attended. And of course, of course, the pictures got leaked to the press. 
As pressure built up on Boris, it was then revealed two weeks ago that the email invitation to the party was sent by Johnson's private secretary, Martin Reynolds, so effectively by Johnson himself. Well, there's been a mounting backlash because, frankly, it's not a good look, is it? Boris's staff enjoying wine and nibbles in the sun while in nearby hospitals people are dying from COVID, unable to have even their spouse with them in their final minutes, not to mention the incredibly hard-working health workers. And then reports emerged of other parties, most notably for Christmas 2020 and in April 2021, when indoor social mixing was banned. To make matters worse, that last party was the day before the funeral of the Duke of Edinburgh, where we saw pictures of the Queen sitting on her own because she was determined that the very restrictive COVID rules applied to her as well, even at that difficult time. Now, Boris Johnson is a fascinating character, a populist rather than universally popular. He's no idiot and has carefully cultivated the public persona of a bumbling buffoon, an upper-class, eaten-educated toff who is also a man of the people. In many ways, he's a tamer version of Donald Trump with all the similar appeal of a man who doesn't care what others think about him and yet also has what we might generously describe as a self-indulgent streak. His current wife, Carrie, is his third, and he's famous for having numerous extramarital affairs, some of which also produce children, in addition to those he's had with his many wives. He's no saint. But like Trump before him, he ended up being the man the electorate chose, which might say something about the choice that those voters were facing. Well, now it looks like even Boris has run out of excuses and escapes. He certainly made things worse with how he's handled what has, of course, become known as Partygate. First, his office called a party a work meeting. Then Johnson claimed that he'd been assured there was no party and that no rules had been broken. So no rules had been broken at the party that didn't happen. Uh, he's even apologised to Buckingham Palace for the April party and has now been forced to get a senior civil servant to conduct an investigation. His current strategy is to rebuff all demands to resign with a call to wait for the results of that investigation. But what could it possibly say that we don't already have more than enough evidence of? Whatever we think of the merits of the lockdowns, I'm sure we dual citizens have a whole spectrum of thought on that. Whatever we think about lockdowns, Boris and his staff broke his own government's COVID rules more than once. At his invitation, he spoke to the nation, asking them to make enormous sacrifice, and then he hosted a party breaking the very same laws. Now, look, it used to be that people knew what a good resignation looked like. There are still honourable men and women around. So New South Wales Premier Barry O'Farrell famously resigned in 2014 when he realised he'd made a mistake on a statement to ICAC, the Independent Commission Against Corruption here in New South Wales. He'd made a mistake by not declaring an expensive bottle of wine he'd received as a gift. Nobody across politics thought he'd done anything dishonest, but even the honest mistake was enough to cause him to resign because he was an honourable man. But now, Johnson flounders and flannels his way trying to find an escape route. It's shocking to see, and we see more and more of it, don't we? But I don't think we can be surprised. The further and further our society moves away from any understanding of the gospel, the further we're moved from any understanding of how our sin, our wrongdoing, can be dealt with. You see, the gospel of Jesus teaches us that we don't have to keep hiding things away. If we say we are without sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us, writes the Apostle John. 
If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. At the parish I was in before my current role, we had an on-site charity which, amongst other things, had a chaplain tasked with helping men who were caught up in the criminal justice system. Nothing but grace could get these men to be honest about their wrongdoing. They would sit in a room with someone who wasn't going to hold what they'd done against them. And it was liberating. That's the power of the gospel. Knowing that Jesus pays the penalty of our sin, it allows us to be honest about things. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it, to know that you're forgiven. And so it's wonderful to function in an atmosphere where such grace is known. It's not so scary to acknowledge just how wrong I've been. And perhaps that's part of why Boris and others like him won't fully own their behavior. Boris says, I take full responsibility for what happened, and yet he's not taking responsibility. He's not paying the bill because I guess there is not one ounce of grace anywhere around him. The opposition calls for his resignation every time he enters the House of Commons. The media bay for his blood in the meantime, and more generally, we have a wider culture that increasingly cancels and shames with no hope of restoration. So no wonder Boris is hanging in there. He's actually got nothing to lose by doing so. But Christian, we can't be like that. Where we've done wrong, we need to repent. Where we've wronged others, we need to make amends. Where we've been hypocrites, we need to acknowledge it. And only the gospel of Jesus will fully free us to do this. Will Boris go? Look, who can tell? He's used more political lives up already than a whole clouder of cats. But wouldn't it be great if he actually fully acknowledged his wrongdoing? And wouldn't it be even better if he knew the forgiveness that only Jesus can bring? And wouldn't it be great if we lived the same way too? If the citizens of this world knew how our political leaders should conduct themselves, especially when they get things wrong, because the citizens of heaven have given them a shining example of it. Well, that's episode two of Dual Citizens. Thanks for joining us. My name's David Alt. Uh, if you like what you're watching or listening, please do subscribe, hit the like button, uh, um, hit us up on the, on the socials, uh, subscribe to the podcast and let other people know about Dual Citizens. See you next week. <laughs>